Good Sunday morning to you all. Good morning. Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Jesus, we have gathered together to worship you through praise and singing and our offerings in reading your word. But we're also gathered together to listen to what you have to tell us. Lord, make me a conduit, not the focus. I ask that you would open our ears, that we could hear you and our lives would be changed. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm hearing a little buzz. Is that me, Joey? Okay, great. Then I will continue. As you know, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and I think it's appropriate to have a little bit of review. We get a running start to today's passage. And those of you who know me know that my brain is a little weak, and so I need the words, and I need the sound, and I need visual. So, Cassie, if you could put up our first picture. You, we've seen this one before. This is Galilee, where Jesus was doing most of his ministry over the last few weeks. In chapter 4, Elliot reminded us how busy Jesus was preaching, teaching, and healing. In fact, he was so busy, he wanted to get away. He took his disciples with a boat. He went across the Sea of Galilee here. It's kind of hard to see because it's a little light, but there's a, the Sea of Galilee. He went across to the region of the Gadarenes. He was seeking rest and a chance for communion with his father. On the way, there's a huge storm. He calms the storm. And immediately, as we enter into chapter 5, there's a demonic who approaches him. This demonic is a Gentile because this area over here, as we've discussed before, is the area of Gentiles. And by Gentiles, we mean non-Jews, which means most of us. So this will be applicable. Jesus gets engaged with this demoniac with spiritual warfare. He heals the man, casts out the demons. The man wants to come with him. Jesus forbids him. He says, no, go tell your friends what the Lord has done. He has no rest. The countryside is in an uproar because of what Jesus has done there. So he crosses back across the Sea of Galilee. And what do you know it? When he gets to the other side, there are large crowds waiting to greet him. No rest. In the midst of these crowds is a leader of the synagogue, Jarius. And Jarius has a daughter who is sick. We find out later in Mark that she's actually, she died. But he doesn't know that at the time. And he asked Jesus to come with him to heal his daughter. The throngs are so great around him that there's a woman who has a bleeding disorder. And she just kind of comes, and so she just wants to touch his garment. Jesus feels the power going out of him. But there are so many people pressed around him, no one can see who that was. He was crushed in the throng. Not much of a place for rest for communing with his father. The woman is healed, and then Jesus goes on and raises the daughter. We move to chapter 6. Jesus is seeking a place to rest. I read from chapter 6, 31 and 32. And he, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure 
even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Jesus tried to boat across the sea to a desolate place, but the, the crowd beat them there. And there's where we heard Bren talk to us about the feeding of the 5,000. Mark likes the word immediately, and immediately he sent his disciples into the boat to go back across the Sea of Galilee. We've got a lot of boat action here. But Jesus doesn't go with them. In 646, it says, And after he, Jesus, had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He finally gets a little time to talk with his father. I'm not sure if this sending the disciples on the boat was a ruse to get the crowds to follow the boat so he could have a little time alone, or it just happened that way, but he got some time to pray. Time, we see that time with his father was highest priority. When he's done praying, it's about 4 a.m., the second watch of the night, so maybe he's had maybe eight hours to pray. Jesus sets out on foot to Bethsaida across the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we have the walking on the water incident. He gets in the boat, and instead of going to Bethsaida, he ends up in Genesaret. It's about 10 miles off course from Bethsaida. I don't think he had a doctor's appointment or anything in Bethsaida. He, that was close enough. But when he gets there, he was mobbed by the Jews, seeking healing and miracles. They continued, this continued in, into chapter 7, as Paul taught us last week. There was confrontation by the Pharisees over their hypocrisy as they called, as, as they were critical of the disciples for not following their pharisaical tradition and ending in the impromptu sermon explaining that the real issue grows is what grows in someone's heart. That is where we need to guard against being defiled. Paul talked to us about that last week. So thank you, Cassie, if you can turn that off. I want to note several things about this review. First, there was a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching, a lot of healing. Second, Jesus brings out unending throngs that are following him. And third, Jesus and his disciples are constantly on the move to minister, but also to take time to recover by prayer. Luke 5, 15 through 16 says, But even now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. When it says he would withdraw, that means it happened more than once. That was what he did several times. He was looking for places to get away and pray. Pray, talking to his father. Seems like Jesus being God, could have just kind of snapped his fingers and put a holy curtain down and given himself time to go off and pray. But you know, when Jesus came down from heaven to be with us, he left voluntarily some of the things that he could do as God. He put them aside so that he could be human with us. It's like we don't fully understand it, how he can be fully human and fully God but he didn't do things like that where he just said, okay, I'm going to magically do things to benefit myself. Not magically, spiritually. So Jesus is like us. He's looking for time and places where he can withdraw, have private talk with his Father. Which brings us to our passage for today. 
It's in, on page four, 843, if you want to look in the Pew Bible, 843. It's Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. And I will read. And from there he, this is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We note, initially, he declines to heal this Gentile woman. But the persistence of this woman of faith prevails on his mercy. Let's look at that a little more in detail. Looking at verse 24, I just want to read that again. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. The first thing we notice is it says, from there he arose and went away. From there. Where's the there? Cassie, if we can get number two up there, please. Thank you. So, we recall in chapter 6, Jesus sent his disciples in a boat to Bethsaida, but they ended up in Gennesaret right over here, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. We recall he gets out and he walks on the water, and that's where he ends up. So the there in verse 24 is Gennesaret, and he goes away. Where's the away? Well, we don't know the exact route. It's a very hilly area, so it was not straight, but he ends up in the area of Tyre and Sidon, this big, big red loop. That's the, that's the area. Actually, at first he just gets to Tyre. That's where the house is. And this is in Phoenicia. Those of you who can recall way back to our seventh grade world history class, Phoenicians were some of the earliest seafaring people. And specifically, he's in Tyre. We hear about Tyre throughout the Old Testament, most of it not very good. I'll, I'll give them one good prop. At the time of Solomon, 
Hiram was the king of Tyre, and they were, were renowned for their woodworkers. Solomon was building the first temple, and he got the finest wood from Lebanon, and he wanted the finest woodworkers, and he hired from Hiram the best woodworkers to come down and build the temple. So there was a relationship between Tyre and the rest of Israel. Okay, thanks, Cassie. So, in our text, he goes away up to this area of Tyre. Also, Jesus somehow finds this house. I don't know. He has never been in this area as far as we know. He, in fact, I think he's trying to get away from the crowds so that he can commune with his father. He doesn't know the area, so somehow he gets on his cell phone and finds an Airbnb. I don't know what he does. But he tries to remain hidden. It's pretty clear from the context that he's trying to get some time away for himself and his disciples to pray. And they need to recuperate. They've just been going nonstop. So perhaps moving north away from the Gentiles, moving north to the Gentiles where he's not known as well, maybe that would be helpful. Even so, as he gets away from his ministry as Galilee, maybe he could get some privacy. But his presence went before him. I'm picking up in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And he went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus is trying to get some private time with God. Immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. He had no time to rest. Immediately he was approached by this new character. What do we know about her? She's a woman. Not the highest point in society at that time. And this woman had a demon-possessed daughter. We know that she's passionate, she's desperate, she sought him out and fell prostrate, a sign of submission and of honor. What else do we know? She's a Gentile, non-Jew. The whole point of Jesus going to this area was less notoriety among the Gentiles and getting some time. She's a Syrophoenician. We saw on the map that she, this is in the area of Phoenicia, and the Scripture confirms, yes, she's a Syrophoenician. She's a Phoenician by race. At that time, Syria had conquered that area and ruled over it, of course, under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. So much like the Herods who were nominally Jews ruled over Israel, the Syrians, under the Romans, ruled over Phoenicia. So culturally, she's a Phoenician. Syrian rules under the Roman rules. And we know that she's passionate. Jesus is her last hope for her daughter. You can imagine she's tried everything. And she comes, she's begging him. But she knew of Jesus' power. Picking up in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus' response is that he declines. Well, that's strange. He hasn't done that before that I can recall. And he says it in a strange way. 
Let the children be fed first. You can't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. As a mother, she would get that. You only have a limited amount of food. You don't take food away from your child who's hungry and throw it to the dogs. And it's worth mentioning, it's not dogs like we think of now. We have Spot or Skippy who's sitting in your kitchen, and uh, you feed them a couple times a day. The dogs of the first century are more like we think of rats today. They were feral. They were diseased. They were large. They were scavengers. They were dirty. So it's like saying, we don't take the food from our kids and give it to these oversized rats that we're trying to keep out of our house and exterminate. Jesus sounds so insulting, doesn't he? What does he mean? We need to spend some time looking at that. What he means is it's not your turn. Let's move on to 28. We'll talk about this a little bit. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So let's unpack this a little bit, what's going on here. Remember back when we did our study in Genesis? We started in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Everything was going great for a very little while, or at least in Genesis. But chapter 3, we get to sin. And Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden. It doesn't stop there. Their son Cain kills their other son, Abel. Any of you parents here can imagine that one of your children killing the other one? Talk about sin piercing someone's heart. And it gets worse. Sin continues to abound. It propagates. We see at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 where people are trying to exalt themselves up to be like God. It gets worse and worse. Finally, God says, Let's do a start over. Let me take Noah and his family. We're going to wipe out the rest of mankind. We'll start over. And they did. But you know, it didn't take long until the descendants of Abraham were sinning, and it was just like it was before. Now, it sounds like God's saying, let me keep trying different things until I can get this right. That is not the case at all. God, through His mercy, wisdom, and patience, gave mankind every opportunity to follow Him. But we did not. But God cared so much that He reversed the process. Rather than mankind chasing God, He, God, would choose mankind. He did this by choosing a people, the Jewish people, to bring reconciliation through Jesus to us. And he started with one man, Abram, whose name he changed to Abraham. And he made a covenant. Let me read to you from Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." We see three promises in this covenant. The promise of land in verse 1. In verse 2, we see the promise of descendants. And in verse 3, we see the promise of a blessing 
and of redemption to the Jews and to all the earth. That includes us. In Deuteronomy 14, 2, God is talking to the Jewish people, and He says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He has set them aside. So at this point, God worked to and through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, but not all Abraham's descendants, really only those through his second son, Isaac, and not all those of Isaac's second, through Isaac, it was only those through Isaac's second son, Jacob. It's like God said, I will show my mercy on mankind, so he picked the most stiff-necked, idol-worshipping, and rebellious people that he could find, as if to show that it was not their doing, not our doing, but his sovereign mercy. We know that through Jesus, the Son of God, who condescended to live as a Jewish man, this blessing and redemption is made possible. It's made possible to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 says, Remember that you, the Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. However, at the end of this action, Jesus still walked the earth at the time of this action. So here he is with the Syrophoenician woman. He hadn't died for our sins. That time where he, God is ministering through the Jews and to the Jews has not ended. He had not paid the price for our sins. God is still working through the Jews. So pull out your bulletin. On the front, you'll see our weekly verse. It's my goal that as you come in Sunday mornings, you greet one another, you get your bulletin, and then you look at the verse. Because whoever is reading who have prepared the Scripture, has chosen that verse for your edification. For us today, it is from Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What, that is what it means when Jesus said, let the children be fed first, God was working still through and to the Jews. It wasn't time for salvation to be opened to the Gentiles. But what happens? This woman, she pushes back, not in an arrogant or controlling method. She admits that she is like a dog but asks for the crumbs that fall from the table. She has faith in Jesus that even the crumbs will be enough to heal her daughter. Jesus relents in an act of compassion. First, she didn't demand. Second, she was persistent and third, she demonstrated faith by her words and actions. Even a crumb would be sufficient. I want to spend just a little time on that being persistent. It reminds me of the passage that Kenneth read for us today in Luke 18. 
and I'll just review it for us. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he defy law? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find will he find faith on earth? She is persistent. We also need to be persistent in our prayers. You know, when we pray, when we ask things of God, He gives us one of three answers to simplify it. He says yes, which we rejoice in. He says no, which we have to learn to trust Him that He has our best interests. And the answer that I often have most trouble with is wait. Yesterday, I was at a memorial service for a friend of ours. Uh, many of you who are on the prayer chain have been praying for Ben Wallen. He's a young man. Uh, we knew him. He was a friend of our children. And Ben had a lot of issues. As an infant, he had multiple surgeries in the first month, none of which he was expected to survive. He was supposed to be on a breathing tube his entire life. He was supposed to be on a feeding tube his entire life. God answered the prayers of his parents, his family, the church. He said yes, and there was great rejoicing. When we ask God for something, and He grants it, that means our will and His are aligned. So not only do we get what we want, but we're in tune with God. The second thing is He can say no. That's sometimes harder for us. Ben was a special needs young man in several ways, not only physically, but um, he was on the on the autism scale, uh, significantly on the autism scale. But one thing he had is that he had a heart for evangelism. He wanted everybody to know Jesus, and he went about it with a fervor. I don't think there was ever a conversation that I had with him after he turned about 12 that didn't include Jesus. And he took this with him wherever he went, church, job, whatever. And you would think, what a witness for Christ. Why, God, did you take him home? Ben had some physical problems. He had stomach issues, which hospitalized him. He had brain surgery, all to no avail. He passed a couple months ago. And his family and friends, church family, many of you were praying for him. And God said no. And I was at that memorial service yesterday, and I saw a family working through their mourning, but rejoicing because they trusted God, that God had a place for Ben, and this was his timing. The one that I have trouble with is the wait. Yes, no, and wait. Is he going to do it? Is he not? I was sitting in the memorial service, 
and a few rows in front of me was a not-too-distant family member of Ben's. And I knew, because I know this family, that this person was not a believer. I know Ben had been praying for him for years. God said, wait. Many of us have children, parents, siblings, friends that we pray for on a regular basis. God, please bring this person to you. And for some reason or another, he says, wait. That's hard for us. But I submit to you, we need to apply the same trust in God we do when we get a no as we do when we get a wait. So the, back to our text, the Syrophoenician woman, she did not demand. She was persistent, and she demonstrated her faith. I have a question. I have a question. If Jesus wasn't healing Gentiles, didn't he heal the Gadarene demonic? He was a Gentile. Well, that demoniac did not request the healing. The demons in him were challenging Jesus, and he was engaged in spiritual warfare. The case of the centurion's servant, I'll briefly take us to Matthew 8. I'm reading in verse 5. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came from forward to him, appealing to him. As you may know, centurion is Roman, therefore Gentile. He said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You sense the attitude? But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It states clearly that it's the faith of the centurion that moves Jesus to make this happen. That tips the scale. This is the same thing that happens with the woman that we see in our story tonight. She demonstrates her faith by laying it all on the line. Literally. She's prostrate. The result, Jesus acted in, a mercy, in mercy based on her faith. Cassie, if you can give us our final graphic while I read verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. Sounds pretty straightforward. He was up in Tyre. He went back to Galilee. It wasn't working. Um, being, trying to get away from the crowds. Might as well go back to Galilee. So I'm just going to go back there. But look how he does it. He's in Tyre. And he goes along, along this yellow line. I don't have the exact roads here. But he goes north. To Sidon. That's not toward Galilee. That's out of the way. Kind of as out of the way as you can get. Then, from Sidon, he crosses over this mountainous area, goes around through the Decapolis, 
All this e region is the Decapolis, includes Damascus, um, all these, Gadara, all these cities here. He crosses over through Gentile territory and comes to the Sea of Galilee by the back way. So we see that although in verse 24, Jesus had gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon, thus far in the story, he only made it as far as Tyre, where he healed that demoniac's daughter. Now, devoid of the chance to pray due to the crowds, no doubt, he heads home. But as we saw, he went way out of his way. The quickest way back through Galilee would be the way he came, about 30 miles. But he continues north to Sidon and then goes across the mountain region through Decapolis to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. From the context, he is still making time with his father a priority. He is willing to go over 100 miles out of his way rather than the 30 miles back. It would have taken time to reverse his tracks, much less time. He goes way out of his way. He took the long way around. I think he's still seeking time to pray. Thanks, Cassie. Verse 32. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, we start here. They brought to him a man. Who brought to him a man? Who is the they? Well, by context, it clearly can't be the, the disciples. The disciples haven't been here. They don't know anybody. There's obviously a close bond between the they and the man that they brought. That wouldn't be the disciples. It's got to be friends of the man. Again, Gentile area. So some Gentiles heard of him. Let's come and see if Jesus can help. They too were impassioned, and they begged Jesus to lay hands on him. It's worth taking a, a little bit of time to talk about laying of hands. We read in Mark 5.23 that Jairus, that synagogue leader whose daughter was healed, that Jairus implored him, Jesus, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Certainly, Jesus and Jairus knew what laying, of hand, laying on of hands were. We see in Mark 6, verse 5, And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, which is in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Jesus was in the habit of using this technique as a, a way for healing. This is not the only reason that people lay hands. Sometimes we use it in an act of consecration. When we consecrate or ordain people here, we typically bring them up front and lay our hands on them as we pray for them. It reminds me of Moses. When his ministry was done, the people of Israel were getting ready to go into it, to the promised land. God had told Moses, you're not going. Joshua's going to lead them. So I'm going to look quickly at numbers. Joshua was consecrated, and I'm looking at numbers 
27:18. So the Lord said to Moses, "Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom the, the spirit a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in your sight." So that's another reason people would lay hands. So we see that these Gentiles use this term. They expect Jesus to understand it. Jesus has used this term before. He's used this method of healing. We see the same faith demonstrated by the Gentile friends that we did by the Syrophoenician woman. What do they want? Their friend is a deaf mute. They want his hearing healed, and they want him to be able to speak. They wanted his speech to be restored, more specifically, is what it says. We say restored, or I say restored, actually, because the healing act opens his ears to hear and releases his tongue to speak clearly. This implies that he already knew the language, which he wouldn't have known had he been born deaf. He could have been tongue-tied, many people are tongue-tied even now, or as many deaf people do, they speak with less clarity than those who can check their speech orally. But back to our story. Seeing their faith, Jesus pulls him, this deaf-mute aside, in private. We again see Jesus guarding against the crowd frenzy that comes along with his miraculous healings. Then he does something strange. He does not lay hands on him for healing. Hmm. He puts his fingers in his ears and touched the man's tongue with spittle. Was this necessary? No. He could have healed him with a thought, with a word, or with laying on of hands, many ways. He then follows with a nonverbal prayer as he gazes up to heaven and an impassioned sigh. He concludes with a command, be opened. Ephatha is biblical Aramaic. The result is not just that the man's portals to communication are restored, but the friends and his disciples observed that intimate connection that Jesus made with this man. His physical touch, touch on his tongue, emotional connection with God, deep sigh. There's a lot going on here. They all observed it. Jesus made this connection with the Father and also with the man. This was a further testimony of where Jesus' power comes from. It's divine. Jesus continues his effort to keep the miracle mobs from further inhibiting his time communicating with the Father. Plus, we see that this was not just a simple request. Here, he is repeatedly charging the bystanders to keep to themselves. But the more he told them not to tell of this, the more they spread the story. I don't believe, or I, I don't believe that Jesus wanted the people to focus on the miracles, but on his message. One other thing. They were astonished, incredibly so, so astonished that one couldn't relate in any way that they could explain. They couldn't convey it, how astounded they were. As I considered this, I was struck by the emphasis that the witnesses put on this miracle. I think I would have probably been more impressed with the raising of the dead or with the healing of the blind. But this, they saw this Jesus 
is amazing. The words they use are, He has done all things well. I think that's a gross understatement. They were astounded. In conclusion, as we observe Jesus in situations that are unique to what we have come to expect, there are several takeaways that I want us to focus on. First, it's good to be reminded that God is sovereign. Without His action, we would be stuck on the treadmill that could never reconcile us to God. He did this as He chose the Jews to be the nation from which salvation and blessing was given. Second, we see again that the healing by Jesus, be it physical or spiritual, is through faith. This was true of Abraham, as it was recorded in Genesis 15:6, And he, Abraham, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We continually need to remember this in our lives, even as we consider Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Finally, Jesus demonstrates the importance of prayer, spending time with God. How much more so is it critical for us. If Jesus valued it enough to go over 100 miles out of His way to remove the distractions, we must also fight for time with our Heavenly Father. What reasons do we have for putting off or avoiding time with Him? It's critical to remove any barriers that we have in spending time with Him. There's not enough time. I'm tired. I'm too busy. We had an emergency. I'm embarrassed because of my sin, and I don't want to be confronted by the truth of God. We need to be people who come to God, who do everything we can to spend time, not to be distracted by the crowds, by the noise, by the rush of everyday life to come to God who gives us strength. Will you pray with, pray with me, please? Dear Jesus, thank you for your compassion and mercy. There are critical needs in our life and in the lives of our family members. Give us the faith to approach you boldly, even as this woman did on behalf of her daughter, and may we not grow weary, but persistently come to you. Give us patience when you say wait. Give us trust when you say no. And guide us in our thanksgiving when you say yes. Convict us that we make our relationship with you our top priority. Weekly, daily, and even that moment-by-moment moment abiding. Lord, change our relationship with you even now. In your name and power we pray.